Hebrews chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. For every high priest taken among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Also, or As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for your word and the supremacy of it. We thank you, Lord, that it's all that we need it to be and more. We thank you that it will outlive the heavens and the earth, Lord. Lord, it's a privilege to to have our lives be measured against your majestic word, Lord. We want our lives to be further fashioned, Lord, according to your grace and your mercy, to the full expression of what you have plans for each one of our lives. Lord, we want our lives to represent uh, being a trophy of your grace. And Lord, we pray that you, right now as we, we uh, stand before you now and as we submit our hearts before your word, Lord, that we would have hearts that are ready to be changed by you, by your spirit, as we look into your word. We are not worthy to look in your word. We, we don't even come close to coming worthy, becoming worthy for this. But we know that your spirit teaches us, and we ask that he would be our teacher this morning, and he would bring application as, as only he can. We thank you for the privilege of studying together as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's, you uh, be seated, that's the right word, word, word to say. Forgot, forgot uh, communion on the first Sunday of the month, and now I'm telling you to stand when you're already standing. How much more can you stand? You're going to levitate if I'm, you're not careful. So, all right, let's move on. Now the context, what we've been looking at. The writer of the book of Hebrews has been encouraging these Jewish believers to, to stand fast and to uh, persevere and to hold fast their confession because they're being extremely tempted to, to go back to Judaism, go back under the law of Moses, go back under the sacrificial system, and so forth. And so what the writer has introduced previously in previous chapters but has touched on in the latter part of chapter 4 and now in chapter 5 and then he'll even continue on in chapter 7 and, 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 and beyond that is this whole theme of the high priest. Now for us Gentiles, it's, that's a non-Jew if, you don't, if you're not aware of that, uh, for us Gentiles it's hard to imagine the importance and the significance that these Jewish believers with this Jewish background would, would place on this whole subject of the high priest. It was everything to them. It was everything to them. It meant so much to them. And so for us, we wonder why is the writer spending so much time dealing with this? And we haven't even got chapter 7 and chapter 8 and, and, and on and on and on it goes for a few chapters there. 
So we wonder, why is he spending so much time? And it's because of how important it was. Their whole identity was centered around that high priest and what that high priest did in that temple. And so that's why he's driving this home. What you're, what you're being tempted away from uh, is so much superior to what you already have. And so as we saw last week, in fact, let's turn over just to chapter 4, just a page back or um, just a, a few paragraphs back. He says in verse 14 of chapter 4, this is what we looked at last week, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So he says, our high priest is a great high priest. Aaron and his sons were never considered to be or called the great high priest. But he, as we saw, is a great high priest and he's passed through the heavens. So much more superior than what the high priest of their day would do, passing through the different courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the men, the court of the women, and so forth, under the holy place, in the most holy place the, the high priest could go. And, and so he passed through the heavens. He went through so much more uh, into a better throne room because the, the tabernacle and later the temple were a copy. They were a picture of, of heaven. So our great high priest goes into the very reality upon which the, the, the models were based. So much, so much more superior as, as we saw. But also we are told in verse 14 that he's the son of God. No high priest was ever called the, the son of God. They would never even claim that title. They would never even want anyone to call him that title. But that's who Jesus is. He is the son of God. And then we saw in verse 15 he said there, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now we're going to see today in chapter 5, he talk about the high priest having sympathy for the people, but he couldn't have this, the sympathy that Jesus has for us. Because no high priest, I don't care how great he was, I don't care how faithful he was to God's calling on his life, he could never say he could identify with mankind's sins in, in their temptations, rather, in all points. Notice the word all there. In all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin. And at the end of the verse, he further says something that no high priest could ever say. Jesus said at one point, who among you could, you know, convicts me of sin? There was silence then and there's silence today when that question is asked. No high priest could say they were without sin, but Jesus could say that. And that's why in verse 16 he said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now in the Jewish system, uh, that the presence of the Lord, as we saw, was represented at the Ark of the Covenant there in the mercy seat. And so that high priest was the only person, the only human, and he could only do it once a year, and that, after he had sacrifices made for his own sin, could go into the Holy of Holies and be right there in the presence of, of God. So how much more superior is our, is our relationship with God? Because we can come not just into the Holy of Holies in, in the tabernacle or the temple that was a, a, a type or, or a shadow or something that was a model based on the original. We can actually go into the original or the, the true throne room. And it's a throne room of grace, not judgment, not a throne room of condemnation, and a throne room that's checking off all our ways that we fall short and, and, and having us have to be a certain way to be able to come before him. He says, no, because you've had the, the righteousness of Christ put to your account through faith in him, now you can come before him and positionally you are completely 100% holy and you can have a perfect relationship with him. And so 
He's always calling us to go into that throne room of grace, to go before him. But we don't do it, do we? We don't really do it as often as we probably should. I know we need a lot more grace and mercy than we probably realize at times, or at least we'd like to admit. And so it's a good exhortation for us to come boldly right before him on a daily, even moment-by-moment basis. The temple at this time, as I've mentioned, is going, you know, it's there. It's still existing. It hasn't been uh, destroyed yet by that, that Roman general Titus there under the Roman Empire. So it's still there. This is about three years away from that time, three or four years uh, away from the time where it would be destroyed. And, and last week, I, I kind of tried to give us a cultural picture of what it would be like for these Jewish Christians having this long history with God and, and been so proud and so uh, thankful for, the, for all of their heritage. And they had this great temple, the second temple that's there, that was there at that time. It was beautiful. And here are these Christians, they're meeting in homes. There wouldn't be any church buildings until the second century, formal church buildings. So here they're, they're, they're Jewish brethren, so to speak, those that haven't received Christ. They're still being able to go to that temple. They're still being able to go to that high priest. There were 15 high priests. This is probably the, the 15th high priest was, was probably serving at this time. There were 15 subsequent to that veil being torn where God said, it's over. You have total access to me. There's no priesthood anymore uh, apart from the priesthood of all believers. And, and now you have total access. So this, the, you know, around this time is the 15th high priest uh, right before that temple was going to be destroyed. And so you can, you can imagine or try to imagine the temptation if you're a, a Jewish Christian. They've already been persecuted. We're told that elsewhere in the book. They've already been persecuted. They're already experiencing this. And now that's really being ramped up. And now their whole identity is they're being tempted to go back. And what, what they could go back to in their mind is fully functional. It's going to go on forever. And it's not going to go on forever. And the, the so-called alternative or that which we, they would be going to instead of that is, is these little Christian you know, homes and, and all of that. And that is so much in, uh, superior to what they've already had because it's in the new covenant, which we're going to get to in Hebrews, is a better covenant. It's better. And so that's, that's kind of the context that he's speaking into. And so they were being tempted to cease their, their, uh, their love and their dedication to, to Jesus being the Messiah. And so this writer is trying to kind of grab their face and get their attention and say, look, what you have is so much superior, so much better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's, better, he's a better revelation. He's so many things that are superior, but he's also a better high priest. Now as we get into our passage, notice in verse 1 the writer begins to expound on the high priest function and we learn something a little bit about how all of this occurred in in the economy of, of Judaism. He says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. I mentioned this many times we need to keep reviewing that the purpose of a priest is to is to represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And in verse one, we kind of see him elaborating on that one aspect of the priest where he would relate, uh, you know, kind of relate man to God. And that's we see that by him saying that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And it's implied that he's doing it on behalf of man. The high priest, that's what was his role. You would bring him a sacrifice. You'd bring him a burnt offering. 
I'm not talking about your wife's cooking or your husband's cooking. I said both now. Talking about something entirely different. This is an expression of worship where you sacrificed this animal and it would be totally consumed. And I believe that was the picture that Paul had in Romans chapter 12. When he said that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, I'm sure that he had the picture of the burnt offering in mind there. So here you'd bring this high priest these gifts and sacrifices. So the required sacrifices for sin you would bring to him, and then also the gifts that you would give to the Lord, you would give to him, and he would stand before the Lord, and he would represent you. He would be your liaison or your mediator between, between you and God. That was his role, that, and that was very valuable at that point. God set it up. It's not like God didn't set up the priesthood. He set up the priesthood. He wanted man to have a way to relate to him but he was, he was working something so much more superior in when his son would come and be our great high priest. Now notice in verse 1, he says, Every high priest is taken from among men and is appointed for men. The idea was that the high priest could understand mankind because he was part of mankind. He could relate to, to man. In fact, he further elaborates this further uh, in verse 2. He says, uh, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Now, verse 1, we saw him describe kind of the role of the priest in the sense that he represents man to God through offerings. And now he's kind of talking about how the high priest represents God to man. And you could miss that if you don't really look closely in verse 2. That's the whole idea, is that the high priest was to represent God's compassion to man. That's what the priest was to do. In how he functioned and how he served the people, he was supposed to represent God's heart to the people. And thus, since God is compassionate, then he was supposed to represent that compassion to those who are ignorant and going astray, which pretty much just sums us up, doesn't it? <laughs> that, that describes us, apart from the Lord, even ongoing, you know, beyond knowing the Lord. We can be very ignorant at times, and we can go astray uh, as, as believers, and so that, that kind of sums it up. But God wanted man to know, through the high priest, that he had compassion on him. The fact that he even set up a sacrificial system in the first place, and even gave a way for man to approach God, albeit through, you know, the priesthood and all the very specific steps. When you read through Leviticus and you see how unapproachable God was, except if you went to him according to his very narrow prescription, his very narrow way of coming to him. Going, coming to God has always been narrow. God has always decided that it's, he has very specific ways for us to approach him. And, and so he, he wants them to know, I have compassion on what you experience. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to hear that God's compassionate towards you. I mean, that he has compassion on what you're going through. What are you going through? You're going through a trial. You're going through a challenge. Maybe you're hurting physically. Maybe you're hurting financially. Maybe you've been betrayed recently. Maybe someone has turned their back on you. God has compassion for you. He has great, great compassion. No one could ever have greater compassion than than God. And so he says that was the role of this high priest. Verse 3. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. 
So because the high priest was weak as well, as he says there in the, in the, in the, in the end of verse 2, because he's weak and because he sins and because he falls short, he was to offer sacrifices for himself before he ever could approach God. Now, Jesus never had to do that. Jesus never had to make a sacrifice. He didn't, before he went on that cross, he didn't do a sacrifice for his own sin first. That, that's, that we have, if people believe that, they're believing the wrong Jesus. He was absolutely sinless. That's why the virgin birth had to occur. He didn't have a sinful nature. He had a perfect human nature as he was and is the God-man. And he was the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And what's interesting is that one of the many reasons why he is a superior high priest is because he is the offering and the high priest all at the same time. Now, what priest could have said that? <laughs> None of them could have said that because only Jesus could have been sinless and be able to be the offering and be the sacrifice and then be our high priest to, rep, to represent us. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And notice in verse 4, we're told the high priest had to be called to that office. He says, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So it's very important for us to understand when related to the high priest or anyone related to our service to the Lord, we have to be called. In fact, in that uh, Beliefs in History CD that I handed out today, that goes over, one of our Calvary distinctives has to do with leadership, biblical leadership. And one of the aspects of leadership, I mean, it's true for everyone, all of us, but especially for leadership, that we have to be called. And you can't be self-called. Self-called leaders or self-called anyone serving in any capacity are a danger to the body of Christ because they're serving in their own resources. God, where God guides, he provides. So if he's calling us to be or to do something for him, he always gives us the grace associated with it to be able to do it well. That's why there was so much insecurity in the Bible because people didn't know that. They, they, you got the wrong guy. Are you sure you're calling me? Do you know who you're getting? Isn't that the first thing that we say when God calls us to something so much greater than we can possibly do? You know, Lord, do you know that I'm a former breakdancer? I can't plan a church. You know, you know my background. I barely graduated high school. I had no discipline. All these excuses that we can give. Moses had excuses. God still compensated. God still used him. So often if a person thinks that he is qualified and they are ready and, and they are bringing something to the table, so to speak, and they're going to help God out in some way, they're gonna, it's going to be a train wreck related to their ministry and the purpose that they're going to fulfill uh, in, in the body. They're most likely going to have to be removed from their area of service because they've called themselves. So we have to be ready to hear God's call. He's called all of us to serve him in some capacity. We're all in the ministry, every single one of us. There is a laity and there is a clergy so to speak but it's not how the world defines it and that's and it's not how we usually see it in the church we're all called to ministry there are leadership gifts i recognize that but we're all in the ministry and he has a calling for all of our lives and so this high priest was to be just like anyone else serving because remember it wasn't just the high priest that was serving in the tabernacle and the temple there was many areas of service that israelites had a lot of a lot of things to do related to what god was doing it wasn't just the sons of levi and the sons of, of aaron but of course the high priest had to be called and that's what he's saying here just as aaron was and i want to talk a little bit about how they chose the high priest 
And, and that's one of the things that we forget at times when we study the Bible is that we assume certain things that, it, that aren't there. They didn't choose the high priest. Because what happened was Jacob, that later would be called Israel, he had 12 sons. And one of those sons was named Levi. And Levi had children, of course, and he had three sons. And uh, I think it was um, Kohath was his son that was the son through whom the priesthood came. And, and I think he was uh, uh, Aaron and Moses' uh, grandfather. And so here Aaron was, and, and, and you remember how God set it up with Moses. Moses kind of was used by God to set this whole priesthood up, and, and, and it was according to a very specific way of handling it and how he had set it up. And so the priests were not chosen. No one cast lots for the, the priests. No one cast lots for the high priest. They had to be the sons of Aaron, and they had to be the eldest son. Just like in uh, the monarchy in England today, the, you know, Prince William is the one that's, uh, if time goes on long enough, he will eventually be the king of England because he's the oldest son. And that's how it went back then for the high priest. Now, you could, you could dis, uh, you know, disqualify yourself. Aaron's, Aaron had two sons that disqualified themselves by offering strange fire. But there was another son that took over or kept going from that point on. So that's... that's that's how they came into existence. And, and the reason why I bring that up is to say he's, made, he's correlating how Aaron was not uh, self-called but chosen. And he's comparing that to Jesus being our high priest. Because he, he wants to drive home the point that the Lord Jesus in being our high priest, he wasn't self-called either. He didn't appoint that for himself. He, he uh, was called by the Father to that Ministry, And that's what he says in verse 5. Look with me there. He says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, that is the Father, that's what the he word means there, it's the Father who said of him, to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's quoting here from Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm. And, and so this is speaking of, kind of the, the, the son-king relationship or the kingly son uh, designation that the Lord Jesus has. He is, the, he is the son. That means that he is a king. And, and that's not just for no reason that he's bringing that up because one of the ways that Jesus is better and he's a better high priest is that he's not just a high priest, but he's also a unique high priest in that he's also a king. He's, I mean, he's also, yeah, he's also a king. He's not just a priest, but he's also a king. And that's why I notice in verse 6, he says, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, so here we're introduced into this priest named Melchizedek. We're going to get into this in great detail in chapter 7, Lord willing. But he's dealing with this situation because he knows these Jews and how they think. He knows he's talking about the priesthood. He's talking about the priesthood and, and Jesus being our high priest. But he's anticipating a beef, so to speak, that they would have with this. Being biblical Jews and knowing God's history and his requirements to be high priest, they're anticipating an immediate objection that they could legitimately have related to Jesus being our high priest. And that would be this. Jesus can't be our high priest because Jesus isn't from the, uh, the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's from a totally different 
uh, lineage. So Jacob, one of his 12 sons, was not just Levi, but also Judah. And, and so through that line would the Messiah come. So instantly a Jewish believer could have a problem with this. Wait a minute. How can Jesus be our high priest when he isn't a Levite? He's not one of the sons of, of Aaron in that way. And, and so he can be because he's from a different order of priests. That's the answer that he gives. He's not from the order of Aaron. He's not an ironic high not ironic, Aaronic high priest. He's from a different order altogether. Melchizedek's order is an order where both priests and kings, because he was both a priest and a king, as we'll get into when we look at the, the, the verse that reveals who he is uh, in Genesis at, at a later time. But he was, he was both those things. He was both a king and a priest. And that was fitting because Jesus is a king and he's a priest. He's many other things too, but he's, also, but he's, he's of course, a, a king and a priest. And that's why he quotes Psalm 110 as well, talking about Melchizedek there, because that was a very, very messianic psalm. They would all understand Psalm 110 being a messianic psalm. And, but he says something interesting by quoting that verse in verse 6. Notice in verse 6, he uses the word forever. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, could, could Aaron live forever? Could those high priests live forever? No, absolutely not. But because Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek in that priesthood, he could uh, be a priest forever. No, no high priest could say that. And that, that's a superior high priest because you don't have to worry about succession. You don't have to worry about him you know, not being in office at some point. You can always have the comfort that the, our high priest is always going to be available to us. And, and so it's a beautiful thing of how we see uh, Jesus being a superior high priest. And for us as Gentiles, it's kind of hard for us to picture the importance of this. But again, to them, it would be like a bomb going off in their mind and in their hearts. That this man is a completely superior high priest. Now he gets to Jesus' suffering in verses 7 and 8. He says in verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up, prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So he says in the days of his flesh, and of course that's talking about his public ministry when he was on earth living here. And, you know, and he says when he offered up prayers and supplication. What's interesting about this word offer up here in verse 7 is it's, it's the same word as in verse 1. If you look back at verse 1 when he says there, he says, for every priest taken among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the same word. So when Jesus is offering up these things to God, it's, it's, it's worship. And it's an expression of faith and worship, even though he's crying out and he's struggling. Because the obvious picture here is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's crying, when he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. Gethsemane means olive press. And there was, that's fitting because a, a great pressure was, was, you know, he was experiencing at that time because of 
what was coming. And I don't believe it was because he was thinking about the physical pain. Uh, I mean, I know he's thinking of that, but I believe supremely it was about what he was going to go through on that cross. Because we always think of the cross in the context of what he suffered physically. But remember, what he suffered was the wrath that we deserve to experience. So all of the collective wrath that mankind deserved, paying, paying for every sin and taking the punishment for every sin from Adam all the way into the last person that sins and every one of those sins for every person, Jesus took the full wrath that was, that was due us. And, and having never sinned, think about the, the, the feeling of that, having the weight of all of that sin on him and having that, that um, wrath being poured out. There was nothing spared. There wasn't one more, or one more aspect of the wrath that he received that was due us and it wasn't one aspect less of the wrath that we should have coming our way. And so that, that was something that he knew all about. And here he is saying, what did he say in that garden? If there's any other way, let this cup pass. And that cup wasn't passed. He took that full payment and that full wrath that we deserved, which tells us there's no other way to heaven. Because I guarantee you the father would have spared his son if there was another way. There wasn't another way. He was there. But I don't believe that it was limited. These prayers and supplications and cries and so forth was limited to just the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe also on the cross. Jesus cried out to the Father. Read Psalm 22 on your own. That's a, a, a vivid picture by the Holy Spirit of what the Lord Jesus went through. Far more descriptive in many ways than any of the accounts in the Gospels of what Jesus went through on that cross. And when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He really meant that. There was, a, a, there was something there, a mystery that we don't really understand where he didn't understand the full impact of that what that sin debt that he was paying, would, would that, the implications of that related to his relationship with the Father. As the Father turned his face away from him, there was something that was extremely painful. Having that relationship altered in some way, at least in a fellowship type of way. And, and, and so I believe that at that, po- that moment on that cross, he was dealing with those things as well. But also I believe it doesn't, it doesn't exclude the times where he cried out to God. Remember, he spent much uh, a time in prayer, daily in prayer. So I don't believe it's just the end of his life. There's a whole you know, ministry of prayer. And, and, and I love just how descriptive he is. Notice he says, vehement cries and tears to him. That touches us, doesn't it? Because of what we go through. We cry out. Most of the time when we cry, probably I'd say, 90% of the time, it's usually in our beds at night or something or in the middle of the night when no one sees and we're hurting. He knows about every pain that we go through. He knows about what it means to cry out. And vehement cries is, is forceful cries, sobs to God and, and crying out with tears. And, and here he says he gave all of that and, and, and sacrifice all of those things to the Father in expressing his pain for us. What a great high priest. What an amazing high priest that he could do that and would do that. But he says, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, talking about reverence, his respect 
to the Father, for the Father, and his, and his godly fear. God heard him. That, and, but the, the point is, is that he, he went, had to go through it anyway. That he, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It's interesting in verse 8, isn't it? Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. You think about, he's God. How could he learn anything? Well, there were times in Jesus' public ministry where he didn't know something. Who touched me when the lady touched him? Who touched me? Or he said, the the son doesn't know uh, the times that, you know, the father has planned related to the second coming and so forth. So there's things that he didn't know, uh, but, there were, but, but he, doesn't, he didn't stop being God, obviously. But those things were shielded from him in some, some of those things. But he cried out, and he, he had to learn obedience. Because think about it, before he came to the world, when would he have to be obedient? When would there be an opportunity to disobey? No one was telling him to do anything. He's God. You know, remember in John 17, in that great high priestly prayer, He said, the glory that I had with you before the world began. We have no idea the condescension that the Lord Jesus experienced in coming to this world because we have no idea the place from which he came. It's veiled to us. We don't see it. If we did see it, we'd probably worship him infinitely more than what we do now with our heart and with our mind and with everything that we have. So there was a part of his mission where he had to learn obedience and that's encouraging for us because we suffer too, don't we? We suffer as Christians. Jesus said in this life, you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So we face suffering as Christians. We have to face everything that this world faces, all the hardship that this world faces. But in addition to that, we're dealing with our sinful nature. Some of us were surprised on the potency of our sinful nature when we came to know him. Wow, it's, it's pretty profound. This monster inside of me, it's like you're going downstream and you don't sense the, the current, but when you start going, doing a U-turn and you start going upstream, you start feeling that current. And that current is when, within each one of our lives. We have our sinful nature. But then we battle the world because the world's going a different direction. So we battle the, the world and the, and the demonic forces and so forth. So we deal with so much and it's so hard and it's so difficult. But we would, be, we would be wrong if we didn't realize that God wants to use that in our lives to help us to learn discipline as well, to learn obedience. Because we, can, we can't think that Jesus, oh, well, you know, Jesus needed to learn obedience but, uh, through suffering, but I don't. I'm kind of, that's, I'm the exception to that. That was him, that's, this is me, uh, you know, I don't know how we can do kind of our crazy thinking at times, but we can do it. And we can think, I, you know, I'm kind of immune to that. I don't really need to learn obedience by suffering, but we do. And so we have to embrace suffering. As difficult as it is, there's grace for it. Remember what Paul said. He said, I prayed to the Lord three times that this messenger of Satan would, would be removed from my life. It was sent to buffet me. Three times I prayed. But God said to me, my strength is made perfect in weakness and my grace is sufficient for you. We throw that around, you know, but when you're going through something big in your mind and, you know, in reality, you're going through something very significant, you are grabbing onto every part of God's grace that you possibly can grab onto. And his strength really is made perfect or complete in uh, our lives. 
in weakness as, as we're struggling. But what's so encouraging for us as we see how amazing our high priest is, is that he can't say, I know it in theory, what you go through. He says, I've been there. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to be lonely. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to have people reject you for no good reason. I know what it's like to suffer. Don't as we think, well, Jesus, you know, he didn't ever sin, so he doesn't know what it's like to deal with sin. He did know what it's like. He, we've just covered that. In all points he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And, I, and as I said last week, I don't believe that Christ could have sinned. But think about the pressure and, and, and suffering as if you could sin, but, but not doing it and having to deal with all of that. That's a very significant thing. Or we think, well, Christ was never sick. You know, we don't see Jesus sick. So how can he relate to me? But he took all the punishment and he provided healing for us. And it may not happen in this life, but it will happen for sure when we get our new bodies. But he knows what it's like to deal with physical suffering. I don't think any one of our sicknesses or things that we could possibly go through could ever match the physical suffering that he went through, the physical pain. If you're sick and you're going through physical pain, he knows all about physical pain. It just isn't the result of him being sick, but he knows all about being, uh, you know, being engaged in suffering and hurting and, and not knowing how to you know, focus on the things that you need to focus because you're suffering to such an, a great, greater extent than you normally are. He knows all about it. He knows about betrayal. He knows about people talking about you. You know, whatever we could think of that we deal with, he's dealt with it. And he had to learn obedience through crying out to the Lord and being dependent upon the Father for strength and grace. And so when we call out to him for those things, he says, I know exactly what it's like. That's why it's a throne of grace. Because he can relate to us. Because he can know exactly what we're going through. He can say, I've been there. He can legitimately say, I've been there. And isn't that what comforts us? To know that our high priest has gone through all of that already. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're told to comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. Sometimes we wonder, why is God allowing us to go through this particular thing? And sometimes it's just for no other reason than for others to be helped down the road after we've made it through it successfully by his grace. So that we can come to somebody and say, I know exactly what you're going through. I went through it. And it's so encouraging. I learned how to be obedient because of the things that I suffered. Because what kind of obedience is he talking about? For us, at least. It's brokenness. You know, God, there's two laws in the, in the universe. There is a God. And number two, you're not him. <laughs> you know, brokenness is facilitated by unmet expectations. By thinking God should work a certain way, but yet he chooses to work another way and being let down. He has the right to do that. He has the right to, to be sovereign and to work how he chooses to. And when we think everything should happen a certain way, and if it doesn't happen a certain way, then somehow he's less than God. That's the thing that needs to work in our lives to where we submit and humble ourselves to uh, the, our maker. Because we're the clay and he's the potter, not the other way around. And, and we never outgrow needing to learn and be settled on his lordship in our lives. There are times when we think we, you know, I've surrendered everything. Come on, God, try to find something that I haven't surrendered, you, to, you know, to you. You know, come on, I, I call you out, you know. And, and, and he's just, <laughs> I need to be gracious with this kid. And then you go through life and you realize, oh, I didn't really have that 
um, surrendered to him like I thought. And so he, he says, okay, I'm going to allow certain things to get. How many times have, have, in our lives have he's got our attention because of something that we're going through that's difficult? A lot. I think a lot of us would raise our hands to that. So he allows certain things to get our attention, to get us to be usable and submitted. That's really the key word. Jesus needed to be fully submitted to the Father's plan. He asked the Father if there's another way. That was his humanity. He wanted to please the Father, but he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's surrender. That's being submitted to God. That's saying, you make the call in my life. You know, sometimes people have asked me, you know, how did you, how did your life end up how it ended up? How did you plan that out? How did you make that happen? Well, did you have a five-year plan? Did you have a 10-year plan? Did you have, did you write it out? Did you have goals? You have to have goals or God can't accomplish anything in our lives if we don't write them out. You know, all this stuff. I'm like, I didn't have any plan. I just tried to follow the Lord one day at a time and it led to where I am now. That's it. Because we're not leading him around in life. Despite what the, a lot of the, the popular Christian books have in their in their uh, selection there. He is leading our lives. He gets to decide what happens in our lives. And when we have all these expectations, and Lord, it has to look like this. It has to be like this. It has to be these people. It has to be these circumstances. And we have it all set out in our mind. He just comes in like all those things are set up like dominoes and goes, I have a better plan. And that's the thing we need to remember. Jesus wanted to get out of that in his humanity. But what was better? It was better for him to go through that because now all of mankind can have a personal relationship with God. And when we surrender to him and we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, I trust you. You have a great track record in my life. You have a great track record in your word. You have a great track record in other people's lives that I have been privy to what you've done in their lives. I'm just going to trust you and I'm going to surrender. And God does such a beautiful job of taking our surrendered lives, and then when we look back down the road, we look back, we can see perfect wisdom. He knew exactly what he was doing. He, he knew he didn't miss one thing, and he was taking care of 10 things at once, even though I thought he was only doing one thing, and I didn't think he was doing a very good job of it. <laughs> he does a great job, and he not, does multiple things at once. So he cares about us. He has compassion. He's been tempted in all points. He cried out to God. He's, he's been, you know, broken before the Lord. And he knows what it's like to surrender. He knows that's the best thing for us. So it, we can learn obedience and brokenness as we cooperate with what he's doing in our lives. But if we fight against that, we're going to be fighting against what his purposes are in us. And we're going to be frustrated. He doesn't want that for us. So I want to encourage you this morning, encourage my heart. Whatever he has for your life, be led by the Spirit. And trust that he knows what's best. And if it includes suffering, build a say to him, so be it. I'm going to follow you wherever you lead because where you lead is what's best. And I want to close with this. The disciples had no idea what the, where they were going to go. When he called them, they didn't do a contract. You know, right now I'm tracking football and free agency and all this stuff and who's signing and all these, all these contracts they have, all these these waivers and these, these conditions and so forth. When he called the disciples, they didn't say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Tell us where you're going. How long are you going there? You know, what's it going to look like? Who am I going to meet? What city am I going to live? They dropped their nets and they followed him. There was something that happened between them and the Lord that he said, that's the Messiah. You need to go towards him and follow him wherever he leads because he knows what's best. 
There was no prearranged you know, uh, negotiations or anything like that. He gets to lead our lives. He knows what's best. Let's trust him. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your plan. You always know what's best. I pray that you would continue to encourage us to trust you. You know, Lord, how weak we are. We think of the man who felt weak and, and asked you, Jesus, um, to help him believe even more. He believed, but he needed help for his unbelief. And you, you, you didn't shy away from that. You, you still gave him faith, and you honored the little faith that he had. Thank you, Lord, that you can get a lot done with a little of our trust, Lord. So we pray that you, you would continue to encourage your people, myself included, to trust you and to surrender. And whatever you have for us, you know what's best. Help us to honor you with our faith. You're more worthy than anything we could offer to you, including our faith. We thank you for this passage. Use it for your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen.